Thanks so much. If you've got a Bible within sight, please keep it open. We'll look at it quite closely. And also on the inside of your um, service sheet, right in the middle page, you'll see an outline of the argument of tonight's talk, which will help you to, to follow. I want us to look together at a, a neglected piece of evidence that Jesus must be from God. And actually, when I was a skeptic looking into it, there was a whole variety of different things that caused me to think seriously. So one of them was the fact that I realized my own belief in atheism uh, was not very rational and didn't fit very well with uh, some of the things I was learning about the world uh, in my science studies and with philosophy. It wasn't a very coherent worldview, whereas the Christian view uh, did fit together very well. That, that was one piece of evidence. Second piece of evidence, I noticed that the gospel seemed to transform people and that the Christians I knew lived in a way that was distinctive and very attractive. So I was um, sharing with some people earlier today, there was a, um, quite an awkward guy, sort of social misfit in our college, and I knew at school how you treated people like that. If someone's a bit odd, then you ostracise them, and you don't join in with them, and then when they're not there, you then speak about them and, and share how odd they are with each other. But the Christians, they was this oddball, and that isn't how they treated him. Uh, they were warm towards him and polite and included him, made a great effort with him, never made a fuss about it. And when he wasn't there, they spoke well of him. And I was quite challenged by that. It seemed that Christians did live in a, a very attractive and different way. No backstabbing or slandering, but positively loving people. That, that was another piece of evidence that convinced me. Then I started looking, as I said before, at some of the eyewitness documents about Jesus. I never knew that the history of it was checkable. And I could read the accounts of people who were there and people who actually were persecuted for what they testified. There wasn't much in it for them, apart from what they'd seen and reported because they were convinced that it really happened. I found that quite persuasive. But I want to talk today about another um, strand of evidence that's often neglected, namely the way in which Jesus' life was predicted hundreds of years beforehand and exactly matches the predictions. And I want to suggest this evening that that would be quite difficult for him to fake if he were just a religious charlatan, just if he just made it all up. So, for example, you may know that Jesus' birth in Bethlehem was predicted. It was predicted that the king would be born in a town called Bethlehem. Now, it's quite difficult even to fake that. I mean, obviously, Jesus himself can't affix where he was born, but you might think his parents would have fixed it. But even that's quite difficult to do. So I was supposed to be born in a hospital in a place called Huntingdon, and my parents have mapped out the way to the hospital, you know, so that they're all ready for their first child. But actually, I arrived for the first time really ever in my life, uh, uh, for the only time ever in my life, um, early. I arrived two weeks early. My parents were at a dinner party quite a long way from Huntingdon, and no one knew where a hospital was, and it was all quite awkward. Um, even your own birth can be difficult to plan, especially Jesus' birth, actually, because it turns out the only reason he was born in Bethlehem, even though his parents lived quite a long way away in a place called Nazareth, was because the Romans ordered a census where everyone had to return to their tribal hometown for registration. And in Mary and Joseph's case, that meant trekking quite a long way to Bethlehem because David was, because uh, Joseph was from the line of, of David. That was the the hometown of that tribe, and so that's where his wife, being he heavily pregnant, 
ended up having her baby. Quite difficult even to fix your birth. But today we're looking at his death. And maybe even more difficult to fix your death. I wonder if you noticed, as we heard that reading three times, the words, this happened to fulfill the scripture. This happened, in other words, exactly in line with a prediction made hundreds of years beforehand. You'll see it there in verse 24. Look down. They said to another, let's not tear it, but cast lots of it to see who gets it. They did this to fulfill the scripture. And then uh, you'll see it again in verse 28. Jesus knew that everything was accomplished in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said. And then you get the same thing in verse 36. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. So the author, John, as he writes his eyewitness material of what happened at the cross, he's drawing our attention to the fact that these things were predicted many, many years in advance. And I want to suggest that's quite impressive. Now, you might think, oh, but isn't it just a cheap magic trick? You know, everyone knows that magicians nowadays, they do predictions and they, they come true. I'm going to do a magic trick now. The magic trick begins with me throwing this. I asked for a ball and um, I got given this rather macabre eyeball <laughs> with, with blood vessels dangling from the back. So, you know, slightly odd. But anyway, it's a ball. And it, it, it begins with you catching this successfully, right? So I tried this in Christchurch and it... People couldn't catch, so I hope you can do better than that in Auckland. Are you all ready? Get your hands up. I'm going to throw this. This is just to pick a random person in the crowd. Here we go. Well done. Excellent. Um, thanks very much. Uh, you are now a volunteer. I thought, yeah, I can catch it too. Good. Um, that would have been embarrassing. Um, you are a randomly chosen volunteer. Please, can you select a shape of your choosing? You can either have a triangle, a square, or a circle. What do you choose? Triangle. That's amazing. That is exactly what I predicted you'd say. Can you take your um, order of service and turn to the back? And you'll see that I've uh, handwritten on every single order of service a little triangle. You see, it's exactly what I predicted. And uh, during the, the brief moment where you wonder how that was done, let me explain it to you. Of course, if you had chosen a square, that's amazing. That's exactly what I predicted. Please, can you reach under? People in this middle block, reach under the desk in front of you. And some of you will find a little bit of paper. Just if you're in the central block, reach under the desk. Some people have got one. Do you want to hold it up if you found one? <laughs> It'd be a real help actually if everyone checked because we want to remove these for later. <laughs> and that's amazing. It's a square, exactly what I predicted. And if you've chosen a circle, here's an envelope that's been here the whole time. And inside <laughs> is my prediction. Astounding, astonishing. Isn't that amazing? That's exactly what I predicted. You see, it's, it's, not, it's not that hard to do a magic trick. That's the only one I can do, by the way, so don't bother asking <laughs> for another one. Um, but actually, Jesus' death is harder to do than that magic trick. A couple of key differences. Firstly, you'll notice that I made my prediction, conveniently, after you had picked. But these are predictions that are made before. Um, hundreds of years beforehand, in one case 800 years before, in another case 1,400 years before. And the predictions are, um, are known to everybody. Let's imagine I, I said to everyone in the, in the lecture theatre, someone's going to come in a minute and she's going to pick a triangle, and then in she comes and, and they pick a shape. It's harder for me to fake it, isn't it? Unless, of course, my friends are stooge. Maybe the prophecies are known in advance, 
but then I just make sure that events unfold in the way that is required to fulfill them. Actually, I want to suggest, as we look closely at this, that's very uh, implausible. Because the fulfillment of these prophecies doesn't lie in the hands of Jesus or his followers, but in the hands of his enemies. And it's pretty unlikely that they're willing to go along with a pre-written script. Now, excuse me, I, I know you hate Jesus and you want him dead, but do you mind killing him in exactly this way, please? It's not very plausible. Just look with me one by one at the predictions. First one, then verse 23. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. They said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it. They did this to fulfill the scripture that says, they divided my clothes among them, they cast lots for my clothing. This is what the soldiers did. It's a very specific prediction. It's not just something like, you know, one in three shapes, square, triangle, circle. It's something very, very unusual to have people casting lots to see who gets your clothes. I don't suppose that happens very often in history. And the people who did it, they don't care about the Jewish scriptures. These are Roman soldiers. They're probably ignorant of these words in the 22nd Psalm in the, in the, Isra in the Israel songbook. They're just going about their job, and their job, it turns out, is to execute people. And one of the perks of the job is you get to keep the stuff that the dead guy leaves behind. It's a bit like if you've seen um, footage of Auschwitz, the concentration camp. And you discover that they kept boxes of spectacles, and they shared out the gold watches, and they extracted the gold frillings. We're going to gas these people. They're going to die we might as well get the stuff. Just the perk of the job, isn't it, being an executioner? So they share at his clothes. And, and they get to his undergarment. It's one piece. Well, a quarter of an undergarment is no use to anyone. Uh, let's throw some dice and someone can have the whole thing. You see, they don't care. Just callously executing somebody. But it turns out that their behavior exactly matches a very specific prophecy made thousand years beforehand. Next one, you might think, ah, oh, this one's a bit different. Verse 28. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished, and so that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I'm thirsty. Ah, this one, you see, we're on to him. We know what is going on here. Jesus knows the script, and so he deliberately follows the script. It says, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, he says, I'm thirsty. But actually, the, the prophecy in Psalm 69 doesn't say someone will be thirsty. The prophecy is about what happens after they're thirsty. It says, for my thirst, they gave me vinegar. So Jesus, in a way, sets it up. But it's the crowd who fulfill it. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they filled a sponge full of sour wine on hyssop. And held it up to his mouth. This isn't a fulfillment by Jesus' friends. This is a fulfillment by a crowd who's mocking him. You know, here is somebody uh, gasping for water in the baking sun as they're being killed. I'm thirsty. 
And they go, ha, 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 what a laugh. Then let's not give him water. Let's give him some vinegar. That'll be fun. As they mock and ridicule him dying there. They don't care about the prophecy. And yet unwittingly, they fulfill something written very, very specifically. Come a thousand years beforehand. And then what about the last one? Um, Verse 31, this requires a little bit more explanation, but um, follow from verse 31. Since it was the preparation day, the Jews didn't want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a special day. They requested that Pilate, that's the Roman governor, have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and the other one who'd been crucified with Jesus. When they came to Jesus, they didn't break his legs since they saw he was already dead. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. He, also, he who saw this has testified so that you also may believe. His testimony is true. He knows he's telling the truth. These things happen so that the scripture will be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Also, another scripture says they will look at the one they've pierced. Let me just explain what's going on. So um, the next day is a special Sabbath. That's a religious high day for the Jewish people. And it's the feast, of feast festival of Passover. And this is a special Passover Sabbath. So it's the equivalent of something like Christmas Day in the Jewish calendar. It's the big religious festival. And so they they don't mind executing somebody on a trumped-up charge in front of corrupt witnesses. But they don't want the mess of it around on the special holy religious day. Now, even as I say that, isn't that just the worst kind of religious hypocrisy? You know, we'll murder him. We don't like him. We, we don't care that he's innocent. We'll, we'll get someone to lie in court. And, but, oh, no, let, let's scrub it all up so that on the special religious day, we can look all shiny and religious and, and smart. So, um, excuse me, Pilate, but do you mind sort of hurrying up the execution so that we can go to church and look smiley and happy tomorrow? It's just the worst kind of hypocrisy. One of, the, one of my big problems with, uh, with Christian faith, with religion in general, was hypocrisy. And if you hate religious hypocrisy, you're in good company because Jesus hated it. Here's hypocrisy. Uh, Clean it up for us before the Sabbath. And uh, the way in which you died by crucifixion, this is slightly grim, I'm afraid, but the way you died was by suffocation. There you are hanging by your arms and you've got to breathe. How do you breathe? Well, you've got to somehow fill your lungs. So you you pull yourself up. (gasps) Like that, you pull yourself up with your arm muscles or you push yourself up with your leg muscles, say, <gasps> like that. Now, of course, your leg muscles are stronger than your arm muscles. So as you get more and more tired, there's not much strength left in your arms to be able to breathe, so you rely on your legs. So if someone comes along and breaks your legs, then you've only got your arms to do it with and you're going to get exhausted quicker, so you die quicker from suffocation because you can't breathe. So that's why they do it. Break, it, break the legs just to hurry it up so they die quicker, so it can all be cleaned up by tomorrow, so we can be religious. And they break the first guy's legs, they break the second guy's legs, they come to Jesus, but he's already dead, so they, they don't bother to break his legs. Instead, they stick a spear in his side, and John says, out come, came a mixture of blood and water, which, interestingly, the medics tell us, it probably means the rupturing of the, the pericardial sac, the fluid around the heart, and then the blood mixed together, which is clinical evidence for death. They didn't know that at the time. Their medical science wasn't advanced enough. But they thought, yeah, he's dead. 
stick it in. Yeah, sure enough, he's dead. Unwittingly, I mean, they weren't specially going out to fulfill the scripture. But it had been predicted they won't break his bones and they will pierce him with a spear. I think that's very difficult to fake. Predictions made in advance, very specifically, and the fulfillment of them outside of the control of Jesus or his friends. I think that's impressive evidence. But what I want to do to go on to do is to ask a bit more and say, okay, it's impressive that it was predicted, but I want to go a bit further and say, what do the predictions tell us about what it means? You might say at the very least, it, it seems that God planned this. It was in the script. It was in the script given to the Jewish people hundreds of years beforehand. But what does it mean? And I've got two points you'll see there on the handout. The first one, although Jesus died in agony, he is nonetheless God's king. I wonder if any of you have seen the film The Iron Lady that won Meryl Streep the Oscar for Best Actress. It's a film about Margaret Thatcher. Until recently, our only British female prime minister. We've just got another one while I've been in New Zealand. But uh, it's a film about Margaret Thatcher. But it's quite a clever film. At least the opening sequence is clever. Because it begins with an old lady tottering across the road, going into a corner shop to buy some milk. And she's a bit unsteady on her feet. She sort of waddles over. She looks at the milk in the fridge. And she's a bit surprised at the price, because it's obviously gone up since she can remember goes over to the, um, the checkout guy, there's a, some loud music playing and someone pushes ahead of her in the queue and finally she counts out her coins out of her purse and then she gets her milk in a blue plastic bag and sort of totters off across the road. And the sequence is clever because it, it looks like a film about a weak old lady who's a nobody and actually it's a film about one of the most powerful British women in history. Uh, late in life, you might know Margaret Thatcher had dementia, and it's a film all about that. The point is that when she's in the corner shop, she doesn't look very much like the most powerful woman in British history. You, you might mistake her. That's the trick that the filmmaker's playing on you. You, you wouldn't have realised how significant she was. And I think that's the same is true of Jesus, isn't it, at, the, at this point in his life? I mean, sure, there, there are times in Jesus' life that you might have thought he was a big deal. They're teaching in front of crowds of thousands of people who come to, to hear him. Uh, or when the rumors went round that he'd done extraordinary miracles and uh, a man who was blind at birth and could now see because Jesus had touched him. You, you might think, he's a big deal, this Jesus guy. But probably you wouldn't think this now as you walked along the road and he was a body hanging on a cross, dying as a criminal. You, you might notice the sign that the Roman governor put there, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. And you probably think it was some kind of joke. King, hardly, doesn't look like it. But you see, the point of the prophecies is that anyone who knew the Jewish scriptures ought to look at him at the cross and say, oh, no, no. No, he looks exactly like the king. You see, those prophecies, um, they'll divide lots, of my, they'll cast lots of my clothing, uh, they'll give me vinegar for my thirst. 
They come from songs written by King David. He was the, the most famous of all of the kings of Israel. And he wrote in some of his songs about the experiences he had as, as God's king who was opposed and persecuted. In fact, that was true of much of his life. He was on the run from uh, his rival, on the run later from his own son, often rejected. And yet, there would be no Jewish person who would question for a second that King David was a great king. So as they look at Jesus' life, they, they ought to see something of a, a kind of copy of David. Oh, I recognize those words, casting lots for his clothing. That's like King David wrote about in, in Psalm 22. Giving him vinegar for his thirst. Now that's like King David said in Psalm 69. You know what? This guy on the cross, he looks uncannily like a king. You ought to realize, if you know the scriptures, this is exactly what God had said would happen to his king. But that, actually, that doesn't really solve the, the conundrum, does it? In, in a way, it just makes the question bigger. Because why would God let his king suffer like this? Okay, he, he said that he would, he predicted that he would, but it doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean, surely if, if God were to send his king we'd expect him to come in power and in strength and in victory. We'd expect him to, to fight off the Romans, to conquer evil, to bring transforming power. And instead, God planned to have him killed. It doesn't make any sense. Actually, it's the final prophecy fulfillment that, that unlocks the, the riddle for us. Jesus died as a Passover sacrifice so that we could be saved and forgiven. Now, um, those words at the end that John makes such a big deal of, that they didn't break his bones, you'll have noticed that John, the author, gets very, very excited about this. He's more excited about this one than any of the other ones. He says, the one who saw this has testified so that you may believe. His, his testimony is true. He, he knows he's telling the truth. They, they didn't break his bones. Bit puzzling. I mean, what's the big deal about not breaking his bones? Well, because this is a prophecy that comes from the Jewish instructions for the Passover sacrifice. It, it was the time of the Passover. Uh, the next day was the special Passover Sabbath. It was that special festival. And here are some words from the instructions about the Passover now fulfilled by Jesus. Now, I need to tell you the backstory if you don't know it. About 1,400 years before this, God's people, the, the Israelites, were slaves in the lands of Egypt. And they were brutally oppressed by the Pharaoh at the time, who used them as slave labor to make some of his store cities, such as the, the city of Ramesses, that recently archaeology has um, uncovered evidence for. Um, and God said he wanted to rescue the people, so he said to the Pharaoh, let my people go. But Pharaoh said, forget that. They're building store cities for me. Why should I let them go? So God said, well, I'm going to compel you to let them go by sending some plagues on you. Maybe you heard the story of the, the plagues in, in, on Egypt in the time of Moses. There were various of them, 10 of them. Plague of things like plague of frogs, uh, plague of locusts, plague of gnats, plague of darkness, plague of boils. All these horrible judgments sent against Pharaoh to persuade him that God was more powerful than him and he should let them go. The tenth plague was the worst one. God said, at midnight, I'm going to pass through the land of Egypt 
and strike down every firstborn son in that country. Put your hand up if you're the oldest boy in your family. Yeah, that would be quite a significant death toll, wouldn't it? Tonight, midnight, all of us dead. That was the terrible judgment that God was visiting on the country. But God said to his people, look, there is a way to escape this judgment. Uh, You're to have a, a meal of roast lamb and to put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of your houses. And God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over the houses where you are. And so it became known as the Passover, because God saw the blood and he passed over. So every year, for about 1,400 years, they have a, Jewish families had a meal of roast lamb to celebrate this event in their history. In fact, Jewish families today often still do have roast lamb for Passover. Imagine what it was like for a, a particular Jewish family um, that night. They've they got to take the lamb into the house for four days. I imagine that's long enough for it to be a hit with the children. They probably give it a name. It becomes a household pet. They call it something like Sean, I suppose. And um, uh, Sean's a big hit with the kids, and they're cuddling it before bedtime for, for four days. And then on the 14th day of the month, um, Daddy gets a big knife and uh, says... Uh, Children, just uh, go to your rooms because I've got something to do. And children are always a bit more canny than the parents think, aren't they? They they see uh, Daddy, they see the big knife, and they see Sean. (laughs) They think this isn't good. So there's a tantrum. Daddy, Daddy, what are you going to do to Sean? I'm going to kill him. No, Daddy, I hate you, I hate you. And so uh, Mum and Dad sit the kids down, and they explain to them, if Sean doesn't die tonight, then your brother will. Quite sobering, isn't it, for a little kid to get their head around that? But I imagine after a little bit of thinking time and thoughtful silence, the kids say, Daddy, please kill Sean. And I imagine the kids check that they killed Sean. And rather than just dripping a little bit of blood on the door, I imagine they douse the door with blood just to make sure that God notices. Because the message is clear, at midnight, God's judgment's coming on this evil country. And yet you can be spared from the judgment if there's a blood of the lamb on the door to to mark you out. Because either at midnight you're going to die, or the lamb dies instead. That means that that night, about 3,400 years ago from today... That night, there's only one question that really matters when you go to bed. It doesn't really matter how your degree's going, whether you're going to get a first or a a 2-1. It doesn't really matter whether you've got a job offer at a great law firm. It doesn't really matter whether the girl of your dreams or the boy of your dreams said yes or no. One thing only ultimately matters Did you put blood on the door? Well, they they remember this for 1,400 years, roast lamb every every year. And then comes this particular Passover. And on this Passover, there's a um, a Galilean uh, carpenter who has been tried on blasphemy charges. Everyone knows about it. They've heard of him. He was famous. He was the great preacher. He was the miracle worker, they said. But now he's been found guilty of blasphemy. And he's going to be executed. 
It turns out, actually, that the calendar exactly coincides. He's going to be executed at, at Passover time. And then as he's uh, dying there, or died there on the cross, the soldiers go along, they, they break the bones, they break the bones, they get to him, they, they don't break the bones. And John suddenly does the maths, and he realizes what's happening. This is what God said. Don't break the bones. But the instructions, don't break the bones, they weren't originally talking about Jesus. They were talking about the lamb that was going to be the sacrifice on Passover night. Take a year-old male without defect. None of its bones must be broken. Kill the lamb, uh, eat the lamb, put the blood on the door. And John suddenly realizes Jesus is the lamb. He's the fulfillment of what all of those years of our history were all about. He's the one who dies so that on Judgment Day, God can pass over those people marked out by his blood. That's why Jesus, as the king, dies on a cross. It's not because he's failed. It's not because the Jewish authorities got one better than him. He died quite deliberately, as God had planned he would, as a sacrifice to save us from God's judgment. God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over. Now that means there's only one question that really matters in Auckland tonight. Uh, for us here, for the people out partying, for the people tucking their children into bed across the city. Not what grades you're going to get, not how your, romant your romantic life is going. Not what your career prospects are. Not even whether you've got a cancer diagnosis. Just before I got on the plane to Auckland, I had dinner with a lady my age um, at my church who's uh, got terminal cancer. Probably the last lunch she will host, she's going to be gradually deteriorating this year until she dies. Which is pretty significant as a life-changing bit of news. But more significant even than that, more significant than the cancer or the grades or the romances, or whether you've got the blood on the door. My friend Rachel, she's a Christian actually. She knows she's going to die this year. She also knows that Jesus has died for her as a king. And that because of his blood, she's forgiven from all she's done wrong. And that when she dies, God will welcome her into a perfect world. Let me ask you that question. Uh, what have you done with the life of Jesus? What have you made of the death of Jesus? And is there his blood on your door? Now, just as I close, we're going to have questions in a minute. Let me tell you what you can do with this talk tonight. Um, uh, three things you can do. Uh, firstly, you can just ignore it. You can shelve it. And, and let me just say, that is the easiest thing in the world to do. I don't know why you're here today. Maybe a Christian dragged you. You said, okay, I'll, I'll humor you, I'll come once. And you've heard tonight some very, very significant things, but it is possible just to go on with your life and actually never think about it again. Um, I remember at university, I was, as I said before, I was reluctant to look at Jesus because I didn't really want it to be true. I found some very successful ways of avoiding it. It wasn't that difficult. I just used to go for a physiology essay on Sunday nights. I knew that was when Christians would invite me to church. So I made sure I was in the library doing physiology. And I had to do physiology anyway. And it was due on Monday, so being a procrastinator, there was no chance of me really starting it before Sunday night. 
And so I was busy, and so I couldn't go. And, you know, physiology essays turn into uh, job stuff to do, turn into kids to look after, turn into retirement golf to play. And you might easily just shelve it, never think about it again. Please don't do that. Don't decide by default. But you could do. Um, second thing you could do is to decide to, to check out the evidence more thoroughly. Maybe you're not convinced on the basis of one evening that this is true. But I hope I've given you some stuff to get your teeth into. And why not decide in a more systematic way to go through the evidence? Here's my suggestion. I'm calling it the coffee challenge. Um, I'm obsessed with coffee and so are you apparently. Some great coffee in, in Auckland. Um, my, my suggestion is you take time to look at, engage with the eyewitnesses about Jesus slowly and thoughtfully enough to actually think. So I, I suggest you take John's Gospel. We looked at chapter 19 today, or half of chapter 19 today. There's 21 chapters. I suggest you take just chapter 1 and read it slowly and carefully enough to actually think about it. So maybe um, read a copy of John chapter 1 and annotate it. Put a tick against anything you agree with but across against anything you disagree with and underline anything you don't understand. And at the end of your uh, reading it, then meet a Christian for a coffee, which they will buy for you, I'm promising on their behalf, <laughs> and uh, discuss your annotations. Um, you know, I, d I didn't get this bit, or this didn't seem very fair to me. And the Christian won't know everything about it, they won't have all the answers, but they could just go through it and they might illuminate a few things, and you'll know a little bit more than you did before. And if that's useful, then do the same for chapter 2. That's useful. Do the same for chapter 3. You've got a maximum of 21 copies, so Christians better be saving now. Um, <laughs> if at any point it stops being useful, then you just leave it there. No one hassles you. So all you've got to lose is one hour of your life to read something carefully and a coffee. But potentially, two, three, four, 21 copies. Uh, and really being able to decide in an informed way, is this true? So you could shelve it. Uh, you can investigate it further. Or maybe there's someone here tonight who's at the place where you say, look, uh, I know it's true. May maybe you've been looking into it for a while. You, you looked at the eyewitnesses and you're convinced it's history. Maybe you've looked at your Christian friends and, and you're persuaded that they're changed. Something's transformed them. Maybe you thought a bit about the philosophies. You realise that atheism doesn't really make sense as a worldview. And Christianity does. Maybe tonight you've been convinced because you've seen that how else could God have fixed it in history? Predictions hundreds of years beforehand that come true exactly. It must be true. But you've yet to respond. So I invite you to do that this evening. Lord Jesus, I believe that you are God's king. That you died on the cross as a sacrifice so I could be forgiven. Please would your Passover sacrifice count for me. Enable me to begin to follow you as my king. And please would your judgment pass over me on the final day. Why not say a prayer like that, maybe now or maybe just in the quietness of your room tonight. And begin to be one of the people who's safe when you go to bed, when the judgment day comes. Well, thanks so much for listening. I, um, I'm going to lead some prayer and then questions um, texted in. As usual. Let, let me, let's just pray. We'll, we'll all bow our heads for the, for the sake of those who want to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus is your King. Thank you for uh, the various ways in which you predicted his death hundreds of years beforehand so that we could be sure 
that this was your plan. Thank you, Lord, that he died as a Passover sacrifice so that we could be forgiven. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would count us amongst those marked out by his blood, that we might be safe on the day that you bring your judgment and that you might pass over us. Help us to follow Jesus as our King and Saviour from this day onwards. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Do text in your questions. I think they're going to come up here on the screen and I'll do my best to answer them. Um, how do we know this stuff really happened? Couldn't the person who wrote the Bible have made it up to match the prophecies? Yeah, um, I think one of the things that helps me about Christianity is that it was public. So if I wanted to make a fairy story, everyone knows that all good, fa- good fairy stories begin long, long ago, far, far away. And you might say, oh, well, um, you know, it was long ago, 2,000 years ago, and it was far away because we're in New Zealand and this stuff happened in Israel. That's true. But when it was first proclaimed, it wasn't very long ago, just a a matter of of weeks ago, and it wasn't very far away. Christianity got preached in Jerusalem, the city where they killed Jesus, just a month later. So it was very recently and very close by. Now, if I want to make up a a fairy story long, long ago, far far away, the the advantage is that you can't check. So I could say, for example, um, I suppose most of you are in teens and 20s. I'm 41. So I could say um, 30 years ago, before most of you were born, um, 30 years ago I I came to New Zealand with my family and uh, we went to a remote part of the mountains in the South Island and when I was on my own with no one else around I levitated a sheep for three minutes. Um, No one else was there but you have to take my word for it. Now I suspect you probably wouldn't take my word for it. You'd say, you made that up, it's clearly nonsense. Similarly, if I were to tell you that I met an angel in a cave when I was on my own, and he dictated a book, and no one else was there, you'll just have to take my word for it. Well, personally, I I wouldn't take Muhammad's word for it. I, I I think you probably made it up, especially since you became a very rich and powerful person because of what you wrote. But Jesus' uh, life and death and resurrection, they're not like that. They're they're public. Um, Not not only are they public, but but John tells us where it happens and who was there. Even just in this chapter, you'll have noticed uh, specifying characters. So we've got Pilate, the Roman governor. Archaeology confirms his identity. We've got um, Jesus' mother and his auntie. Uh, We've got a woman called Mary Magdalene. Uh, now, if you think, okay, nowadays we don't know who these people are, but on the first day Christianity is preached, you can go and ask Pilate. You can go and check with Jesus' auntie. You can find a woman called Mary Magdalene, and you know where it happened, in Jerusalem. The same is true of al- almost everything that's recorded about Jesus. Names, dates, places, and it's just checkable. I want to suggest you, you can't get away with making this up, because a lot of people were there. If I said, oh, oh no, they, they didn't break any of his bones. Yeah, we did, say the soldiers. Oh, oh, they cast lots for his clothing. I don't remember seeing that, says one of the people watching. But these are public events, publicly witnessed, publicly checkable. Um, you can look at more into that. Good question. Regarding the Passover, why did anything need to die? Why couldn't God have just loved and forgiven people? Yeah, it's a good question. 
Um, Richard Dawkins, our most famous British atheist, puts that rather starkly in his book, The God Delusion. He says it like this. Um, I've um, described atonement, Jesus' death on the cross, I've described atonement, the, sectru- the central doctrine of Christianity, as sadomasochistic, barbaric, and repellent. If God wanted to forgive us, why not just forgive us, rather than having his son butchered in the process? Um, that's the same question, but, but rather strongly. Why can't God just forgive? And um, there's basically two, two, answer, two reasons, answers to that. Um, basically, God cares about justice too much, and God cares about truthfulness too much. Let me go through them very briefly. God cares about justice too much because God says in the Bible repeatedly that he really hates it when under corrupt regimes, guilty people get acquitted and innocent people get imprisoned. Now, sadly, that does happen over the world. It doesn't happen in New Zealand, I think. You've got a good justice system. But there are tyrannical regimes where the government locks up its enemies, who are innocent, and uh, vindicates crooks because they're on the government side. And God says, I hate that. I hate miscarriages of justice where guilty people go free. You can imagine the outcry, can't you? If it was, let's say it's a rape trial, and um, the guy's clearly guilty, and it's established he's guilty, and the judge says, yeah, I mean, you're guilty, you, you raped somebody, but I'm a forgiving kind of judge, and I'm having a good day, and I, I'm loving towards you, so off you go, you know, you're free. It's not really loving, is it? I mean, at least that is loving towards a rapist in a, in a kind of unjust, fraudulent way. And there'd be an outcry about that. The Bible says God ha- cares about justice, he hates injustice. And so if someone turns up in God's courtroom and they're actually guilty, God isn't prepared to say, oh yeah, but I'll just pretend that it wasn't that bad. Uh, the Bible says that actually to forgive someone is very costly and a price has to be paid. And in this case, it's the, the price of the death of Jesus. So God's justice makes forgiveness difficult. The other, the other answer is God's truthfulness makes forgiveness difficult because God said right at the beginning of the Bible that if um, human beings rejected God, they, would, they were going to die. It was his warning. Don't reject me. Don't go off into your own, on your own into the world and turn your back on me because if you do, you'll die. And uh, Satan, the devil, right at the beginning of the Bible, he contradicts God and says, no, 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 you won't die. Now, God's just bluffing, God's lying, God's exaggerating. You can live without God and have a great time. It's just, it's just all scaremongering. So right at the beginning of the Bible, you get two versions of the truth. God says, reject me and you'll die. And the devil says, no, no, no you won't die. So the question is, if, if you reject God, which is going to happen? Either you're going to die or you're not going to die. Let, let's imagine God says, oh, you rejected me, but I'll, I'll let you off. It's okay. I mean, I, I know I threatened it, but, you know, I'm, I'm feeling more loving today. It's fine. You won't die. In other words, who should you have trusted? The devil. He was right. God just makes threats and goes back on them. You can't really trust what he says. But actually, God never makes a promise that he doesn't fulfill. And having promised, warned the consequences of the death penalty, there has got to be a death penalty. But wonderfully, Jesus offers to die instead of us. His justice, his truthfulness requires a penalty. But Jesus, in his amazing love, offers to take the penalty instead. Next question. Um, 
why do Jews still celebrate the Passover if Jesus died on a cross? Um, well, it depends whether they're Jews who recognize Jesus as the Messiah or not. So some Jewish people are Christians, and uh, we've got a Jewish guy in our church called Ziggy, a uh, good Jewish name, Zygmunt Rogoff, and he's a Jewish believer, and uh, he believes that Jesus is the Messiah promised in his own scriptures. Jesus came as the Passover sacrifice. He has Passovers, basically because it's a great opportunity for him to tell his other Jewish friends about Jesus, and because he likes roast lamb. So he often invites, <laughs> he often invites me around for a bit like we have Christmas, and he has Passover, and it's just a way of remembering it. Um, sadly, there are many Jewish people who don't accept Jesus. And you, you see some of them here in the chapter. The, the Jewish leaders and the high priests, uh, they were jealous of Jesus. They, they thought he was a blasphemer. They had him killed. And so sadly, they celebrate the Passover because they're, they're still waiting for the one who's going to deliver them. And um, I, I've got people like that in London. I, I'm, I'm trying to show them, look, even in your own scriptures... You see all the descriptions that Jesus meets. Can you not see he's the one you're looking forward to? But some, some modern-day Jews reject that, and so uh, they carry on with the sacrifices um, in ignorance of that. Question, what would it look like to put Jesus first in my life and live with him as my king? Um, I think, I don't know New Zealand culture very well, but what I've picked up about it is you're quite an egalitarian society. You don't like tall poppies. You don't like someone setting themselves up again o- over everyone else. Um, and therefore, the idea of, I don't know what you think of the queen, um, our, our shared queen, but it's probably okay, isn't it? Because she's a sort of figurehead monarch. But if Queen Elizabeth II were actually to turn up in New Zealand and start telling you how to live your life, I suspect you wouldn't be up for that. Um, and the same true in England. You know, we, we don't, some, of, some people like the queen especially on her birthday, and you know, she, she looks great jumping out of a helicopter at the Olympics. But, but if the Queen were to start saying, this is what you should do in your sex life, you'd be like, hey, back off. So we don't like the idea of authority figures. And so Jesus, he's asking to be a king, not in a figurehead Queen Elizabeth II kind of way. He's asking to be king in a I decide everything about your life kind of way. I decide who you sleep with. I decide how you use your money. I decide what your life is for. And we're like, no thanks, I'm not up for that. Um, I said this morning, we were asking the question in the morning service, um, what kind of leader is Jesus? And I was asking the question, is he the kind of leader you can trust with your whole life? Because that's a pretty big decision. It's a bit like if you get married, actually. I mean, Christian marriage, at any rate, is giving up your independence and entrusting your life in the hands of somebody else who loves you. Um, And it's pretty scary. People think quite hard about whether they're going to marry somebody. Because to say as you walk down the aisle, uh, with my body I honour you, all that I have I share with you, all that I am I give to you, it's a pretty big promise. So Jesus wants to be in charge of everything. He wants us to put our lives in his hands. And just like you'd be stupid to marry somebody without knowing whether you could trust them, same with Jesus. But I think we find out certainly that he loves us, he's committed to us. And a Christian is someone who's got to the point where they say, you know what, I can trust him. In fact, to be honest, I think I can trust him more than I can trust myself with my life. And so Jesus says you've got to turn to him and 
and crown him, make him the one who calls the shots. Um, next verse. In Psalm, last question. Oh, thanks. It's a really hard question for last. Thanks very much for whoever's typing in the questions. Uh, last question. In Psalm 69, 21, it also says, they gave me poison for food. Did that also happen uh, in Jesus' life, or did they fulfill at least some of the prophecies? I don't know. I'm going to have to look it up. So bear with me as we look at Psalm 60, 69. Okay, so in the translation I've got here, verse 21, instead they gave me gall for my food, for my thirst. They gave me vinegar. And the footnote tells me that gall is a bitter substance. So I guess in your translation, it's, it's poison. It's a, it's a horrible, unpleasant, nasty thing. Um, it's worth saying that the prophecies, um, in the first instance, this is King David describing his experience. So they don't in every way describe Jesus. Um, they describe David's life. But the fulfillment aspect comes from the extraordinary way in which it turns out that King David's life, lived a thousand years beforehand, matches the life of Jesus a thousand years later. So um, even if it were, sort of, David's experience is slightly different. It's poison and it's bitter. And in Jesus' case, it's vinegar and it's bitter. That would still be quite a close parallel. So it's, it's not as if Psalm 69 says, this is exactly what's going to happen. Rather, Psalm 69 describes David's experience, and John 20 says, uh, John 19 says, Jesus' experience matches it. The same is true of the, the bones broken one. So if you look up the instruction for the, for the bones broken, it's about the past of a lamb. It says it's got to be a one-year-old male. Well, Jesus wasn't one years old. He's probably in his 30s when he died. So it doesn't matter that the prophecies aren't exact. Rather, the point is that through history, God is setting up these extraordinarily uncanny parallels. So that when you see this one, you think, I've seen that before somewhere. It's, it's very uncannily like, like that. So um, I'm not worried if it is slightly different, but I, I wonder whether the translation is just, it's a nasty, bitter thing that they gave me. Uh, they gave me vinegar, and that's what, what's, that's what happened. Um, there's a whole lot more of them, uh, load, of more, load of more prophecies, uh, and they all line up uncannily. So there's lots of King David ones. It's not as if they're just random verses picked out. It's almost everything about the life of David matches. And there's lots of Passover ones. It's not just one picked out. But lots and lots of different aspects about the Passover. It's the Passover time of year. Um, Jesus had already been called a lamb, uh, the lamb of God by a, a key prophet. Um, they don't break his bones. Jesus just celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. So I would say look for clusters of evidence rather than individual bits. And the cumulative weight of it, I think, is, is persuasive. Um, that's it for questions. Let me leave you with my challenges. What could you do with this? Uh, you could shelve it. Easiest thing in the world to do. Please don't do that. But it's your decision if that's, if that's how you respond. Secondly, please look into it further. Uh, you might want to check it out. Why not do the coffee challenge and just do chapter one? Get a Bible. A Christian will give you a Bible. Um, annotate chapter one and get a coffee. If it's useful, do chapter two. If it's not useful, leave it there. Uh, or maybe tonight is the night for you to go home and say, you know what, I think this is true. I think I can trust Jesus. And so why not begin life with him as your king?
today. It would be a very wonderful day and a significant day in your life. Thanks very much.